Welcome to The Trad, I'm Steve Clark. The Brooklyn's All-Stars are a trad jazz band who regularly played sessions for the members in the clubhouse. Sadly, their banjo player, Tony Pitt, passed away recently. Tim Morris talked to Bob Webb, the leader of the band, about his memories of Tony. Barnes Wallace is a name synonymous with Brooklyn's, and in particular well known for the Dan Buster's Bouncing Bomb. But that bomb had a baby brother, the Highball. Dr Ian Murray from Dundee talks later about the recovery of the two of them from the depths of Loch Striven. But first he tells us all about the Highball itself. So bouncing bombs are not terribly uncommon, actually. Um, there are prototypes in several places, including Brooklyn's. Um, there are bits of upkeep, uh, mostly recovered from uh, Reculver in Kent, but complete highballs you do not find. There was not one in a museum anywhere. Um, meanwhile, at Brooklyn's itself, um, you have a prototype bouncing bomb. Uh, you have a complete upkeep. Uh, you have a unique 4,000 pound earthquake bomb prototype. So that's the, uh, the only one of those that still exists. Uh, one of several tall boys which are around and one of several grand slams which are around as well. Uh, but the one that was missing from your set was a complete highball. Wallace uh, actually patented his bouncing bomb idea in 1942. This was one of 140 patents which he produced during his working life. But after the uh, the dams raid in May 1943, uh, they moved all of the highball testing away from Reculver and up to uh, Loch Striven in Scotland because the geography of the loch was much more similar to where they were planning to actually uh, use the highball. Loch Striven, uh, it's only 35 miles from Glasgow, but it's very remote. Um, it's a steep-sided loch. There are very few houses around the sides of the loch, um, so it's quite uh, difficult to get to in other than in, in a boat, really. Um, so it's relatively remote and useful for secret testing. RAF Turnbury, that's where the mosquitoes that were dropping the test bombs were based, so they basically flew up the Firth of Clyde, dodged around the, the island of Butte, and then up uh, into Loch Striven. Uh, the site of RAF Turnbury is now a golf course, or it's partly covered by a golf course, uh, which is owned by a former American president. The one thing about Loch Striven which wasn't quite so secret was the fact that on the island of Butte, there is the uh, seaside resort of Rothsey, and it looks north straight into the mouth of Loch Striven. So anybody with uh, decent binoculars could have had a look straight up there. Um, so when the tests were taking place, they laid a smoke screen across the, the mouth of the uh, the loch, so anybody would have been stopped from actually looking up there. The target ship in the middle of the loch and down in the bottom half, there are a series of buoys, and these were positioned at known distances away from the target ship so that the aircraft flying up the centre of the loch knew how far away it was from the, the target and could release the bombs at the appropriate place. Where the battleship was originally in the, the centre of the loch uh, was about 180 feet deep and although they hung nets underneath the ship in order to 
catch any bombs that uh, struck and fell down. Um, unfortunately, the, the bombs very inconveniently didn't land in the nets very often, um, and the lock there was too deep for them to actually uh, go down and pick the, the bombs up using divers, using the, the, the standard diving dress of the day. The battleship which they used was a, a French World War I battleship Hulk, and it was used between 1943 into the, the summer of 1944, and then it was taken to be sunk off the coast of Normandy. It forms part of the breakwater around the, the Mulberry Harbour at Aramanche. Uh, while it was sitting on the bottom just after D-Day, it was attacked by a German midget submarine, uh, and I think that gives it the unique distinction of having been attacked by secret weapons of both sides during the war, which is rather odd. Um, so because they couldn't recover the, the highballs easily from this location here, by late uh, summer of 43, they had moved the battleship and its accompanying photo ship over closer to the shore and further up the loch as well. Um, and that was where most of the test drops uh, actually took place. How did highball actually work? Um, the reason for using highball rather than a torpedo, um, if you were attacking a moving ship, was that it travelled a lot faster than a torpedo. So if you could get close enough to drop it, uh, it would get to the target much more quickly. So the ship was much less likely to be able to evade. Um, if the ship was anchored, um, then uh, it would probably have had anti-torpedo nets around it, so the uh, the high ball obviously would jump over those, uh, so it wouldn't be affected. The bomb was spun uh, at about 500 rpm, uh, so after it struck the the side of the ship, it would begin to sink, but the spin would actually press the bomb against the hull of the ship as it sank, and then a depth charge pistol would fire it when it was underneath the ship, and of course. The underneath of the ship wasn't armoured, uh, but the side of the ship where a torpedo would have struck was armoured, so it was much more likely to do uh, damage to the uh, the ship by exploding underneath it rather than on the, the armour belt on the side. Uh, the bomb itself is actually surprisingly simple. Um, it's just a steel drum um, with about 600 pounds of Torpex explosive in it. There's a pistol in each end. There's a self-destruct pistol and a depth charge pistol to actually uh, fire it off. The size of it is just under three feet in diameter. Um, and between the cylinder and the outer spherical shell, there were uh, some sort of shock absorbing materials. All of the bombs that were dropped in Loch Striven were dummies. They used uh, rather than the explosive, they used a mixture of cork and concrete just to get the uh, the density correct, uh, and it weighs about uh, 1,200 pounds. Um, so 618 Squadron uh, was formed at the same time as 617 Squadron, and it was the operational squadron that was uh, to go and actually deliver the, uh, the highball bomb, and its main target was to be the Tirpitz, which was uh, hiding in the fjords of Norway, the Germans very inconsiderately had turpets positioned in the fjord in such a way that a broadside uh, attack by aircraft would have been very, very difficult. So the uh, ministry decided that the X-craft midget submarines would get the first crack at the turpets, and they successfully 
uh, attacked it in uh, September of 1943. Then in 1944, the squadron was reformed effectively and revived with the view of going to the Pacific to use highball against Japanese ships in the Pacific. Eric Winkle Brown, the famous test pilot, gave them training in landing and taking off from aircraft carriers. And then in October 1944, 25 or so of the mosquitoes were packaged up and put onto two escort carriers and they sailed for Australia and they got there just on uh, the last day of 1944. They they continued to train, but they were never actually uh, used in combat for reasons which are still debated. Um, This may have been because the Americans didn't want us so heavily involved in their part of the war uh, or that most of the Uh, serious uh, Japanese capital ships had already been sunk or there was no point in revealing the the secret weapon. Um, We may never know the actual reason that it was never used, but even before the war ended, July 1945, the squadron was broken up and all of the high balls were uh, blown up in a controlled explosion. stars with their version of Hello Dolly, recorded live in the clubhouse uh, back in 2011. The band consists of Bob Webb on saxophones, Vic Pitt on uh, bass and his brother Tony Pitt on banjo. We caught up with Bob uh, recently to talk about the Brooklyn's All-Stars and also his memories of Tony. Yeah, so how, how did the Brooklyn's All-Stars come about then Bob? Well, this is going back well over 10 years. Um, Roger Ramage, he suggested one day, because we used to dine on a Thursday, suggested, I know, next Friday, I'll bring an old record player and we'll bring some old records. Um, This went on for a couple of weeks and then he said, why don't you play as well? He said, because I know Vic Pitt, the bass player with Chris Barber. So I said, oh, that would be great. So along comes Vic, Vic with his double bass, 
and we then still use the backing tracks and playing away. Then all of a sudden Vic said, I tell you what, I'll tell my brother to come and play with us, Tony. And that was Tony. So then we had Vic, I mean, Vic was there playing away. Tony comes on banjo and that was it. That was the start, the real thing. So we had, um, we had Pitt the Elder and Pitt the Younger, two of their finest prime ministers on, on bass and banjo. And there they are. So that was great. That went on for a few, uh, a few sessions. Anyway, he said, um, Vic then said to me, Pat Halcox, Chris Barber's trumpet player, was also going to retire because Vic had retired after 35 years with Chris. Uh, Pat retired after 50 years with Chris. I said, Pat comes along and he's sitting in the chair there and I'm looking down at him. He's looking at me, you know, giving me the thumbs up and I'm thinking, here am I playing with these legends you know, who I used to go and watch when I was a little boy, almost. And now they're, you know, they're playing with me. What, what can I do? I, I, I just felt it was so good. And then various players used to turn up on a Friday. Um, and that was it. It, it. it really just got going because of Roger deciding that, um, you know, we would, uh, we would have a little jazz session. I, I mean, we should say that, that Tony Pitt has passed away in January. I, I'm almost lost for words as to what to really say about Tony, other than he loved coming to Brooklands. You know, one day um, he, he left. Now, it was disastrous on a Friday on the M25. Tony lives in Hoddesdon in Hertfordshire. So off Tony goes, but an hour before me, I got home, and about half an hour later, the phone rings and says, Tony, it's Tony Bob. Oh, oh yeah, what's up? Oh, you want to laugh, he says. I haven't even reached the M4 yet. And so the poor devil used to have to come in on a Friday and then fight the M25 on his way home. But he loved Brooklands uh, and uh, in as much that he'd always arrive about half 10, 11 o'clock, have a walk round, have a cup of coffee, um, as all the lads did. I mean, anyone that we, um, I won't say engaged to play with us, anyone that turned up really, really enjoyed coming to Brooklyn's. You couldn't resist playing with those boys because they gave such, such delight, such happiness to everyone that attended. Well, I can only think what it would have been again if we'd have continued. I, I did have an occasion to think myself, if Tony can't do it, I almost feel I couldn't do it myself got to the stage where he was so indispensable and that's not very easy to say about people but you didn't need a drummer he was so rhythmic he could play tunes take solos what a player what a player too yeah i mean he really was probably the bedrock of the your core trio wasn't he of you Absolutely. and he, he was the propulsive backbone of the whole band yeah, I know. It's um, I, I was very sad. He's such a good mate, and um, he would never, uh, how can I put it, never criticise. I used to think I was the um, I was the junior to the whole thing, uh, and never having played trad professionally, and all those lads had, had done so, uh, and I tried my best to uh, um, keep up with them. 
it was great. I really did enjoy those sessions. Yeah, I mean, Tony uh, in particular, he played with Kenny Ball, one of the jazz men, and Macabilk, um, I believe, uh, and various oh, yeah. other luminaries of the the jazz scene over the years. Absolutely, right through to then and on and, and on. My enthusiasm for for Tony and and the rest of the band. We mustn't forget everyone else makes the whole thing. Uh, a complete entity and it's it's been superb i mean over the years you've had quite a lot of different players come into the brooklyn's all stars um such as too many to remember to be honest um when we had the pat halcock celebration obviously chris barber came himself that was down to vic vic actually um uh, got in touch with Chris, uh, and he came. And we had Magic Henry, who's uh, the present trumpet player. Um, that, you know, I mean, he, he was he was brilliant as well. We had an ex-Chris Barber uh, tenor sax player and clarinet player. And again, I, I can't remember, we did have a, a, a lad on piano one day who sang. Um, yeah, I think he was the guy that is doing that Hello Dolly track. Oh, he may well be on that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. These were the early days. But oh, then we had um, another trumpet player from Oxford, uh, Denny Eilert, Denny, uh, um, and always turned up late. So we'd say, here comes the late Denny Eilert. And then he, you know, I remember he joined in halfway through the first number on one occasion. Um, but he's also a brilliant player. Of course, as the, the young uh, trombone player. Graham Hughes, he comes from London as well. Um, so, and he didn't use the mind, as it were, coming down and uh, and playing with us. Uh, we've been very fortunate. We've been able yeah. to get of a, of a good standard. I think it's been brilliant, and it's grown in popularity over the years that you've been doing it uh, for the members in the members' bar in the in the old clubhouse. Yeah, and so that looked quite good because it was like a bit of a jazz club, wasn't it? Everyone had a seat and uh, and could have them ill and. Um, yeah, it, it just got so good. Yep, let's, let's hope we can have some form of music in there in, in the future. And now we return to Dr. Ian Murray, who continues the story of the recovery of the highball from the bottom of Loch Striven. I discovered that I had uh, solid uh, written evidence for at least 120 highball drops in Loch Striven, and I had circumstantial written evidence for about 80 more and that probably didn't include the squadron practice drops that was just the the weapon testing drops um, and I also knew that many of them had not been recovered because they had missed the nets and they couldn't actually get them so my logic at that point was that there were probably still quite a lot down there in the loch and I knew from there not being one in a museum anywhere that we had a good incentive to go and try and uh, recover one. Um, however, I am not a diver. I'm not really a strong swimmer either. Um, so I had to get myself some divers to actually uh, carry out this uh, new mission, which I had. Uh, so this is where the story starts to get almost a little silly because um, it's a rather unconventional way of paying for an operation. And due to the, the economic downturn in 2008, uh, the shipping line Maersk had made a deal with Clydeport, who owned or at least managed Loch Striven. 
um, and they laid up six of their container ships in a raft in the uh, the middle of the loch. Um, the locals were not very happy about this because the ships made quite a lot of, would, even though they were inactive, they made quite a lot of noise. Um, and Maersk were very uh, concerned about the, the negative publicity that they were getting. Um, and as a result, they ended up inviting nearly everybody that lived within a 10 mile radius out to the ships to have lunch. This is where the story really, really gets weird, um, surprisingly courtesy of Children's BBC um, and Mission 2110. Welcome to Futuregate, the enemy's stronghold and the last battleground for the future of humankind. Humanity's cybernetic servants that have all but wiped us out. Let's hope this works. So this TV show was a bit like a, a children's version of the Crystal Maze. Uh, so it was set 100 years in the future, uh, where only one human is left alive fighting against the roboids who have destroyed mankind and who inhabit a base which looks rather like a set of container ships sitting in a Scottish loch. Um, Maersk, the shipping line, were paid £30,000 by the BBC uh, for using the, the ships as a set for the show. Um, and Maersk were keen not to be seen to profit from uh that contact. So what they did was to run a charity competition uh, in which local groups could compete for a share of that £30,000. So from that, uh, we secured £1,200 for the the diving expedition. So that was April 2010. In May, uh, we set up a preliminary dive, just essentially a, a couple of divers were going to walk in off the shore and see what the conditions were like in the loch. But the publicity from the the competition led to the owner of this fishing boat contacting me just the day before we were going to go diving. Um, And he said that he fished in the loch and there were definitely some highballs in there. I said, how do you know? He says, because we fish them out occasionally. I said, great. What do you do with them? He said, oh, we take them over to the deep bit of the loch and drop them in there because we don't fish in that bit. I thought, great. So they are there, but some of them have actually been moved. That's not very helpful. So armed with all of that information, uh, we came back in July of 2010. Uh, we rented out the uh, the fishing boat for a couple of days and he took us up the loch. So we sent the divers down uh, onto one of these and it was a rock about the size of a highball. So they came back up again and then we found another one Uh, He had some of these marked on his charts, which was very helpful. Um, And they dove down onto that. And it was a rock about the size of a highball as well. So they came up and then we found another one and we dived down onto that. And it was a side charge from an X-Craft midget submarine because they were training in the loch using the same ship as a target. Um, But that wasn't a highball. So this happened... uh, through that day, all of the targets were not highballs. So the following day, they managed to get the use of a remotely operated submarine um, to save having to actually get suited up every time and dive down. So we used that. And on, I think, the second target that we uh, went to with the submarine, we found a large anchor, a very large anchor with a very large chain attached to it. And we followed the chain along with the uh, midget submarine there. And partly to my surprise, I didn't see any connection between the chain and highball. But 
there was one sitting right beside the the anchor chain and we found uh, a whole bundle um, so we now knew where the highballs were and uh, it was just a case of arranging to to get them brought out um, unfortunately at that point uh, not terribly much at all happened in fact um, we put in a bid to the lottery which was unsuccessful uh, my diving contacts company went out of business um, I tried to uh, sell the idea to the northern diving group at Fast Lane uh, but I got no interest from them um, I started some of the paperwork because there's quite a lot of paperwork involved in recovering something from the seabed because in 2016 I was contacted by the East Cheshire Subaqua Club and they were looking for some interesting diving experience and they had heard about my desire to get a high ball out of Loch Striven and that started things moving again. Um, so the, the plan was that they would uh, refine the high balls, pick a couple of good ones and lift them up using airbags from the bottom of the loch and tow them using the boats over to a slipway and then wait for the tide to go out and pick the the highball off the, the end of the slipway. Um, so that was planned for July of 2017. And then about three months before that, something rather unexpected happened. I discovered that dive teams are like buses. Uh, they tend to come along in pairs because I got contacted by the chap from the Northern Diving Group and he said, I had divers on the highballs this afternoon. When would you like one? Uh, so initially I was in a panic, uh, but the obvious thing to do was to put the two teams in contact with one another, which turned out to be uh, a match made in heaven. And the Royal Navy team very nicely came with a large diving support vessel, which had a 10-ton crane on it, which made the actual recovery of the highball a lot easier and safer. Um, so the, the bomb that was destined for Brooklyn's uh, first of all, went to the Mary Rose Trust down in Portsmouth, sitting in a tank of uh, desalination fluid. It sat in that tank for a while uh, until all of the uh, the salt was removed from it, and then they took it out and dried it off and varnished it uh, so that it was uh, conserved. And then the final part of the jigsaw, um, the bomb was recovered from uh, the Mary Rose Trust and delivered to Brooklyn's. Brooklyn's now has a complete highball to complete its collection of Barnes Wallace bombs. Brooklyn's news. Back in November, we brought you news of a, a replica Mercedes-Benz EQ Silver Arrow electric racing car on display in the uh, museum's Grand Prix exhibition. This year, Mercedes-Benz EQ team will be starting a, a new chapter in their history and continuing their race season with a clear eye on the title this year. Uh, Stoffel van Dorn and Nick de Vries will continue as the drivers for the 2021 season. Meanwhile, Sam Bird, who we interviewed back in the summer, has changed his Formula E race teams from Envision Virgin to Jaguar Racing, where he joins New Zealand driver Mitch Evans. The Sterling Moss tribute event that we announced in the last edition of the track was due to take place in May. Um, unfortunately that has now been postponed 
and the new date for the event is September the 12th. Brooks Museum does remain closed, but if you check out the brooksmuseum.com website, you'll find an events list taking shape there uh, for a little later in the year, and we do hope to be able to bring you these events. Thanks for listening.